I think there are three main types. You're going to have your board because you've taken investment and your VC wants to see on your board. That's kind of your, your typical one. Then I think you have advisory boards where you want some of that business advice. Maybe you want people that have sold businesses like yours and you want advice on other areas that aren't just product. And that I think could be non-customers. And then I think you have your customer advisory board, which is should be more about how your product develops and how your services meet their needs. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford, President and CISO at Alan Alford Consulting. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Carla Reffold, COO at Orpheus Cyber. Yeah, she's a vendor, but you know my rules. Vendor friends who promise not to be all vendory are allowed on the show, and only when they are truly subject matter experts on the topic. And in Carla's case, she has also been with other cyber companies, held other cyber roles, and is also a member of the Forbes Human Resources Council. And what we're talking about today is an interesting topic on which Carla has done some good research. And in fact, I'm going to ask her a little bit about what might be coming out with regards to this research. But it's all about the ethics of advisory boards and other vendor relationships held by practitioners. It's a great show. Y'all are going to enjoy digging in. So, Carla, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Hey, thank you for having me. All right. So let's start with a little bit about before we dive into this topic, you've got an ebook coming out. Why don't you tell us about your ebook? So I realized I just had a lot to say about board advisory roles. And I know it's a hot topic at the moment with the SEC regulations coming out. Mine's more about vendor advisory boards than it is about that type of board. But I, yeah, put it all down into an ebook and I'm excited to put it out there and get everybody's feedback. All right. When does it, when does it hit the streets? First uh, of April. First of April, right on. So this show will air. I'm trying to think of the physics. I'll have to figure it out. I think the show airs right before that. So hopefully people will hear the show and then and then go get the book. Um, might even be right after, in which case the book is already out. Makes it even easier. Um, maybe bring it forward just for this. There we go. There we go. I'll try that. I'll try that. Um, we'll we'll get we'll get you in the queue and figure it out. All right. So let's start diving into this topic. So first of all, let's talk about the advisory roles. And my first question is: uh, Do most of them pay? Uh, in other words, if a CISO joins an advisory board, are they compensated in some way, equity and cash and these kinds of things? And I'll tell my personal experience. I have been on a grand total of six advisory boards over the years. Four of those are active. Uh, two of them did not pay. Those were my earlier years. Um, four of them do in some way compensate me, uh, equity, cash, whatever it might be. So I've got four advisory roles where I am, in fact, compensated, and I've abandoned the two where I was not. And honestly, for me, from the CISO perspective, this totally came out from just the, I'm busy. <laughs> you know, I'm busy and my time's worth money. And if I'm going to be helping people out and some people are offering money and some aren't, eh, I'm probably going to lean on the ones that are offering some kind of compensation for my time because I just, I've only got so many limited cycles. I can, I already do the podcast. I do my office hour every week. Like there's so much giving for free I can do. Uh, so that's my take on it. That's my perspective. That's my story. What have you seen in your research? How many of these roles do and don't pay? Is it equity? Is it cash? What have you seen? 
pretty similar to what you've just said there so same same as you i've got three positions one of them is compensated and i'm pretty early in that journey like you so i think those early ones tend not to and people take that like probably me and you did because we want that experience and once you've got one of these positions it's obviously much easier to go and get more but again like you've just said as you get more of that experience paid is paid is what we're we're going for and i think most of them are paid in equity and that that's the best way. I want to be aligned to the goals of the company, which is growth. And I want to be rewarded for that growth. So that's where I see most of them being compensated through equity. Yeah, that, that seems to be the bulk in, in my case as well. Um, all right. So part of what prompted this whole conversation is you and I had a chat and you had heard a story or stories, plural, um, that kind of were a bit distressing about this whole advisory board thing. Uh, and it was basically vendors using advisory boards as what is effectively a kickback vehicle. In other words, I'm a CISO, and I'm thinking about purchasing product X, and they tell me if you buy us instead of the competitor, we'll put you on our advisory board, and it's a paid role. So now I'm suddenly being offered a compensation in exchange for purchasing a product uh, versus its competitors, and suddenly my ethics are compromised as the purchasing CISO. I'm sure my company has rules about accepting, you know, compensation is bad, but but it's an advisor role. I'm being paid for my time. It's not really accepting compensation. It's you know, there's this ethical wiggle room there, and to me, I, that just smells like kickback. What's what's your take on this? And how many stories like this have you heard? Well, so I have one story that is that it was 100% me and my company. So I used to run a recruitment business in cybersecurity. One of my team approaches a CISO to work with them. And he says, um, you know, I only work with recruiters where I am on their board. Would you like me to join your advisory board? I already have a couple of these positions. And I mean, we didn't actually even have an advisory board at this point, but the answer was a flat out no we're not contacting this person to work with them ever again. And like, it really has shaped my view of this particular person who obviously I won't name, but they're pretty prominent. Um, and yeah, it really shocked me. But I think that that is, as we see more boards, I definitely see that happening a little bit more. And it is, it's just, I mean, there's no different from him saying, I only work with you if you give me $5,000, right? Like it's the exact same thing. Um, so I, I don't think we can be entirely surprised that this goes on. That's crazy to me. That's driven by the CISO. I was thinking you were going to tell me a story about it was driven by the vendor, right? You could see this as a sales tactic on the part of an unscrupulous vendor. But for the CISO to just be flagrantly saying, pay me extra or I don't work with you. Um, wow. That's, <laughs> that's a highly compromised CISO in my opinion. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, and, you know, I now also look badly at those companies where he is an advisor for because, uh, you know, they went clearly, for the deal. Yeah, exactly. And I have heard it the other way, the way that you said too, where it is maybe not quite that blatant, but there is a definite, you know, desire to, uh, to get you more involved in the company, which is great, right? You should have customers and a customer advisory board but it depends how you're going about doing that. Right, it? exactly. And that and that segues to, I'm going to pivot to another story, which is, okay, so you have customers on your customer advisory board. That's why you call it a customer advisory board. It makes the most sense. You have customers. These are the people actively using your product, coming up with active feedback about your product, et cetera. But it's been my experience, there are actually two types of advisory boards out there. One is the actual customers, and one is the actual not customers. 
highly specifically not customers. And the idea behind the not customer boards is best I can tell. And these, you know, and frankly, uh, as I tell my story about my four, I'll, I'll, I'll share three of mine. I'm not customer and one of mine. I'm customer. Right. Um, you get a prominent CISO who's known for having, uh, uh, you know, thought leadership or whatever, and you want them on your board because of thought leadership. That's one example. Another example might be, hey, why hasn't this CISO become a customer? Like, let's drill into what's missing and what they're, you know, what's lacking. Like, maybe maybe there's a reason they're not a customer, and that feedback would be super invaluable to us. Other times it might just be, hey, you know, product management oftentimes works in a vacuum, and and this is nothing more than, than an extension of the um, – Oh, what do they call it in product management when you bring a bunch of people into a room? Focus survey. It's kind of a focus survey type approach, right? Like, you know, but now my focus, my, my, my survey group is all CISO, so I'm in theory going to get meaningful feedback. Like just getting feedback from any CISO, whether they're a customer or not, could in theory be, you know, more legitimate and, and, and more functional than feedback from a non-CISO might be, right? So, so there's kind of those different paradigms. And I've got one friend, he's a CEO at a startup has an advisory board that's entirely comprised of customers. It's strictly a customer advisory board, uh, all actual customers, and not a one of them is compensated in any way, shape, or form. It is a 100% non-compensated, 100% customer board. That, I think, would probably be the ideal for all these companies, but holy cow, how do you pull that off? I was floored when I heard he had pulled that off. Like, that's some loyal customers right there. I'm willing to give you time you know, it's almost, I guess, a design partnership type customer relationship. I'm just trying to figure out how do you pull that one off because that strikes me as the ideal. I think it depends, and you just touched on this, which type of board do you want? Because I think there are three main types. You're going to have your board because you've taken investment and your VC wants to see on your board. That's kind of your, your typical one. Then I think you have advisory boards where you want some of that business advice. Maybe you want people that have sold businesses like yours and you want advice on other areas that aren't just product. And that, I think, can be non-customers. And then I think you have your customer advisory board, which is should be more about how your product develops and how your services meet their needs. And I think that's where you want customers or people who are in your ideal customer profile, if maybe you don't have enough customers or enough customers that can get permission to that's do That's exactly it. it. Why yeah. aren't you a customer ideal profile? Why aren't you a customer? Help me, help me shape why you would be a customer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's where, you know, a little side point, I think you need a moderator, not you. So it doesn't feel like you're selling. It feels like research. But I think that customer advisory board is where CISOs probably sit best, customer or not. And that's where, yeah, I mean, should you be compensated on that? I, I think maybe the company gets some level of good deal, but really the benefit is you're shaping the roadmap. Map, so the product becomes what you need it to be. And that's the benefit to sitting on that board. Yeah. It's, it's that design partnership angle. It's, it's, you know, there's a lot of very large company CISOs who won't touch startups with a 10 foot pole. They only want big established companies. They only want Gardner magic quadrant, whatever their rules are. Right. Uh, and there's other large company CISOs who absolutely will seek out these startups and say, Hey, I'm going to purchase you as your first big giant hallmark, huge customer that you can splash the logo on your webpage and be all excited about you bagged a big one in exchange for, you're going to shape the product the way I need it to be shaped, right? Like, like there's this, there's this symbiotic relationship where it's true design partnership, and what the big CISO gets out of that is um, something between an off-the-shelf and a customized solution, certainly more customized than any other off-the-shelf paradigm would be. And what the startup gets is a big logo, right? It's a win-win. Um, I've seen that model a lot as well. But, but let me pivot back to I was talking about my four, three, you know, um, three non-customer, one customer. And the customer one brought up some interesting ethics in its own right. This is back when I was at my own cybersecurity startup, 
uh, I was at one, and I was on an advisory board for uh, one of these other cyber startups, and I had an opportunity to purchase their product and use it in-house, and I did so. And I went to my CEO and said, I want to purchase X. I'm on their board. I'm compensated. I was totally transparent and upfront. And the reason I'm recommending them is twofold. Number one, I wouldn't be on their board if I didn't believe in them, right? Like this is proof that I've pre-vetted them. This is a positive for you, my boss, you know, in terms of the, the, the whatever the ethical conundrum might be that we have to work through here. Number two, the fact that I'm on their advisory board means I can probably get a pretty good discount too, right? Like, you know, I've got a relationship with these guys. And that's exactly how it played out. I knew they were the right fit for the company. Uh, I had the relationship. I got a good discount. I brought them in. Everything was transparent. Everything was cool. My boss was completely cool. I have been in other companies, much larger companies, where the fact that I was on the advisory board meant I could never do business with that company as long as I was an employee. Period. End of discussion. There was no wiggle room. There was no anything. You will never bring them into this shop because you are compensated by them in some way, shape, or form. And that's just a hard and fast rule. And so to me, there's this ethical kind of analysis that has to take place. Because in the case of the smaller company, I was totally transparent. I saw the benefits. Boss saw the benefits. We pulled the trigger. We did it. Um, larger companies, just seeing it as an ethical hurdle, they don't care to try to disentangle. Um, which of those perspectives is right? Maybe they're both right. I think they're both right. It depends on the company and what they need and what they who do they have to justify that to, right? If you've got particular shareholders you have to justify those purchases to, then that's a different story than if you're a little little smaller. But exactly what you said, I wouldn't be on their board if I didn't believe in this product. So if you need that product and you're going out to tender and you're looking at their competitors, the idea that you would buy a competitor when you have a product you believe in so deeply you want to help them as a company, it seems kind of odd to me that you wouldn't then want to purchase them, assuming you do all the things that you did where you are being very transparent about it. Uh, and I've had that same scenario twice now as well. So uh, one of the companies I'm an advisor for, we do buy their product and all of those open conversations about how I'm compensated and whether or not that had any bearing, which obviously it didn't, but, uh, you know, all of those things were done. And I think that's what you have to be able to justify. And for you personally, right, you have to be able to look yourself in the mirror and decide whether that that was an okay thing to do. Right. No, Knowing you're doing the right thing. And that actually brings up another ethical conundrum in the other direction. Let's say I'm at said big company and I'm just flat out not allowed to purchase the product because I'm on their advisory board. And I do go with the competitor. I'm now ethically obligated to go back to the company whose advisory board I'm on and go, guys, I just bought your competitor, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, so there's the transparency required that direction, but then it gets even stickier. Do I feed feedback from company B, the, the competitor to my advisory board? Oh man, I'm using them and they suck at this. You guys should do this. This feature is lacking. This is whatever. There's probably some NDA I signed with the vendor early on in the process, Right. And now I've got the ethical burden of do I disclose competitors' weaknesses to my advisory role, right? There's a, it doesn't matter what you do. There's an ethical conundrum here, right? It's the do I purchase is stage one. And then whichever purchase you do, you've got an ethical commitment back to the company you advise for and one to the company you purchased. What's your, what's your take on that one in terms of like do I share those, you know, this, this feature sucks. Guys, go write this feature and you'll kill them in the market. Like do I do that? Let's pause right there for a quick word about Allen Alford Consulting. Howdy, y'all. Alan Alford here to tell you about Alan Alford Consulting. After being a CISO five times, I decided to launch my own cybersecurity consulting practice. My cybersecurity career has spanned companies ranging from five to 50,000 employees, with revenues ranging from $2 million on up to $10 billion. 
I have worked in the cybersecurity industry itself, telecommunications, manufacturing, education, legal, data services, defense contracting, and for a number of SaaS providers as well. What I can do for your organization is to help you better manage, measure, report on, and more importantly, execute on your cybersecurity program. I have helped clients employ cybersecurity frameworks, conduct maturity assessments, develop board reports, and even to draft comprehensive three-year plans with budget and headcount projection to meet compliance and maturity goals. I can help you with anything from an assessment to comprehensive execution. I also offer retainer packages. Find out more at allenalford.com. That's A-L-L-A-N-A-L-F-O-R-D.com. I mean, you know, I probably would have left the advisory board. That would be my feeling. But, you know, and I think this comes up as well when you think about taking multiple positions because, all right, cyber is huge, right? You can take positions with different companies, but products now are becoming quite consolidated and there's crossover even if it's not their main focus. So do you sit on boards where there is crossover? And should you... um, you know, should you be worried if you're the CEO or you're that company, should you be looking at what other advisory boards your advisors are sitting on? Because that does come up as a risk. Now, I think you can share that information, whether you're a prospect or, you know, you might be telling vendors that when you're going through a tendering process, like how much detail as an advisor do you really have? Like, do you really have the IP that is sensitive enough that it shouldn't be shared? Because I think probably no. Um, So I think that risk is really tiny, but it is a risk that I think, companies need to be aware of when they're setting up those boards and then it just comes back to how do you feel about that like can you can you sleep at night knowing that you gave competitor intel away i don't know that i could i i couldn't and honestly your your solution of probably just withdrawing from the board altogether i'd I'd probably end up doing that as soon as i realized i was forced to buy the competition i would go to the board i was advising for and say guys i'm about to be a blah blah customer this is just going to get awkward and weird real quick the best thing for me to do at this point is just disengage that would probably be my solution yeah because i think for for us you know probably love you as a board member but i probably want them want the cash right like i want the customers that's what we're all working to so i i imagine they would respect that right right and and to your point about the multiple advisory boards you know i i get in my own sticky situation because i have i have not only day job have not only been a, a vendor myself, right, a couple of times now, uh, so commitments and loyalties to the vendors I was part of, even if it's just we're friends now and I have no financial stake in it, uh, then there's the fact that I'm a consuming CISO as a standard practitioner CISO consuming these products, and then there's the fact that I have a podcast. I went through a series of interviews two weeks ago to potentially come on and do some work, you know, through my consultancy uh, to do some work for a DSPM company. And literally, as those conversations were taking place, no less than two different other DSPM companies approached me about sponsoring the podcast. And mid-interview process, I had to go to the CEO of this company I was talking to and say, okay, total transparency. This is happening. This is happening. This is happening. You know, here's what's going on. Possible ethical situation. How do you want to deal with it? And then I had to have a serious internal dialogue about, you know, do I go to the people sponsoring the show? In other words, let's say a a vendor comes to me and says, I'm only going to sponsor one show. Just it, it, We know for a fact up front it's a one-show deal. Uh, we'll say, whatever, Acme Corp., who does DSPM, says, you know, Acme DSPM says, I'm going to sponsor one live podcast at this one event. Okay, cool. And then a week later, I sign on at, in, 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 a, in a named capacity with a competitor. How do you think they'd feel about that? Right? So I was like, do I have to contact them? Do I? And so it was a huge mess of entanglements that for me was a real ethical burden. It ended up, thankfully, where... Um, we ended up not moving forward with the role. It was my call, but not for that reason, for other reasons. It ended up just, 
I, I ended up not having to get into that ethical conundrum. I dodged a bullet there, um, but by happenstance, not not because that was the driver. Um, but I was really thinking about that. Like, like if I ever have a sponsor, what if I had a sponsor a year ago, you know? And now all of a sudden I'm working for their competitor. At what point does that tie into all of this? Because money changes hands when someone sponsors my show, right? And I think we're going to see this issue more and more. Like influencers in cybersecurity are becoming a thing. And so actually I think we are going to see that because, and I don't have the answer to this right for you, but how do you, you've got to find a way the way you maintain your trust with your audience because you have a great audience that really respect you and anything you do that puts that in jeopardy probably isn't worth it, right? Yep. 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 Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And, and, and thinking through those entanglements, you know, if somebody were to ask me how many vendors have you done business with over the last four years in the cybersecurity space, I would literally have to include everybody who ever sponsored a podcast. Um, because technically I did business with those folks. Right. And at this point it's probably, you know, 40% of the entire cybersecurity industry I've done business with. So I, I, to me, if it was in the past, if it was under a different banner, I don't sweat it. But now that I'm on my own and just the cyber range equals Alan, you know, it's, it's a whole nother story. I've got to really think that through. Um, okay. So ethical conundrums, let's see here. We got more stuff to talk about. Um, I, I guess before we dive into that, I wanted to kind of dig into our LinkedIn article, uh, I, our LinkedIn post I did a couple of weeks ago about this topic. People had some great comments and, and it generated some great thought and some great conversation. Uh, but before we do that, um, how about any other thoughts on advisory boards in general, um, uh, that you've got? I think a few things, like maybe tips, like firstly, what type of board is it? Like knowing what that is and what you want to get out of it, mainly as a, as a company, what do you expect that board to do? But also as a person joining that board, CISO or other, like what are your motivations and what do you expect to get out of that? And then making sure that you're crystal clear on how this comes together. Like the more you can put in place about how much time you're expected to give, like what value, you know, there's a unwritten sometimes expectation that introductions are made, um, but maybe that should be written. Like I think it depends on the motivations and how clear people can be. So the clearer you can be right from the start, the better. Uh, those are kind of my, my key thoughts. And, and motivation is a big part of that. Like if your motivation is to earn money out of this, that's, that's fine if your motivation is to get experience because I think these type of boards are a great place to gain some better experience, particularly for CISOs who don't often have that sales experience. Um, but yeah, getting crystal clear from the beginning, that's my main thought. I, I like that. Just knowing what the heck you're getting into and why you're getting into it for both parties. Um, so yeah, so I posted on LinkedIn and I asked folks some of the same questions. You know, these advisory board roles, do you have them? How did you get them? Are you uh, paid? Are you compensated in some way? Are you not? How do you deal with these ethical entanglements? And I ended up with about 39 responses on that on that post. It was a it was a good good dialogue that got started with the community. And the one that stood out for me the most, uh, Jason Chan, who's just an awesome human being, former uh, I, I don't think it was a CISO title officially. He ran security at Netflix. Um, back when Netflix was starting, he was he was the guy. Uh, and he's now retired. And he says, I started advising after I'd retired. I felt there was too much conflict of interest while I was in the seat. Compensation has all been equity for me. So he just he just dodged it completely. And I thought that's, you know, that's <laughs> that's one way to do it is just don't even do it. Right. Um, that dodges all these bullets and you don't have to figure out these nuances. What do you think of that approach? 
I think that's the way it traditionally has been, that advisory roles are a retirement kind of position where you have the time and, yeah, you don't have these ethical conundrums. But I don't think it's the way that we're going because you have customers, you want current customers, right? You want people that are very engaged and can make introductions potentially. And as people who are working, we maybe want those roles either financially or because they set us up for those bigger roles in retirement. So I think that that is how it's been done, but I just don't see that how it is right now. Um, and that might mean that you have to take fewer of them because you are setting yourself up for kind of further down the, the road. Yeah, it is It is a changing landscape for sure, I feel like. I, th- I think it's becoming more common. And to your point, even I, I hate the word influencer, but there's that going on. There's more advisory boards popping up. If this SEC thing goes through, there's going to be more board boards. We're about to see every CISO has at least a few ties to something else. We're going to see that, right? Um and, and I think that's probably the case. But but I think at least in Jason's case, while he was there, what a brilliant move to just bypass it all. You know, like, hey, <laughs> no ethical conundrums if I don't even step on the playing field. So I, I thought it was a pretty cool solution. But I think you're right. I'm not sure how tenable it'd be. Certainly in my life, that's just not an option, right? I mean, even with just the podcast on the table, it's not an option. Right. No, I was yeah, just absolutely right. Like same same for me. You know, I want these roles because I see them as a way of gaining broader experience, becoming a better COO, becoming uh, a better industry professional, and kind of having those as an option when I am older and hitting retirement age. So, like for me, they're kind of important to my career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I firmly believe in that. Um... So another interesting snippet, and this one didn't come from the LinkedIn dialogue. It came from a later conversation with a friend, uh, and I'm not going to name him because I'm not 100% sure he wants to be quoted on this one. Um, But picture somebody who's been uh, in a lot of roles in the industry, uh, venture capital founder, all these kinds of things, knows everybody, and uh, has done consulting for CISOs and advising them in their careers and did a bit of research. And the research consisted of hiring managers and recruiters uh, was kind of the research pool. And he uncovered something that I did not know uh, that really surprised me. There are hiring entities out there who will look at your LinkedIn and see that you have a bunch of advisory board roles and immediately pass on you. I've always thought of the advisory board roles as sort of a badge of, hey, this person's respected in the industry enough that the companies want them advising for them. Like it's a badge of honor. It's, a, you know, not everybody and their dog has, a, has an advisory role. You get asked to do these things. You get brought in. You get brought in because of your prominence. It's a sign of your prominence, right? And he said the feedback he was getting from the hiring entities was that it looks like, oh, this person's super distracted. They have too many commitments. There's no reason to bring them on board as our full-time whatever. And, you know, they'll, they'll just be all running all over the place and we won't really have their energy and focus the way we'd like. So go pick somebody who doesn't have any of these roles. That was the feedback he received. And that actually surprised me. Same, but fascinating. And, you know, I know who the individual is and I very much trust the feedback that they have been given. So I think this is incredibly, like very credible, um, but I have not heard or seen that before. The one thing I would say is a an ex-recruiter that I have seen is when someone has 20 advisory roles and you're forever scrolling to try and work out what their background is, that's really annoying. So I think if you could organize your LinkedIn profile in a way that makes it easy to see your main roles, I think that's something you should think about doing. But I definitely used to see them as being a person that had more credibility, more experience and would have more to offer. So I think that's a really interesting thing. And I wonder how that will 
progresses the the landscape of this all changes yeah that's interesting and i I like your idea of organizing mine's a sprawl at this point mine's a giant mess you have to definitely dig around to figure out what i'm actually up to with who uh that's a good idea i might i might try to fix that but i like to be able to give the company their logo and i'm not sure linkedin allows you to bunch without losing those logos like you have to have a one-to-one to to get the logo out there i i don't know maybe i just need to push the advisory board roles to the bottom or something i'll have to figure that out Oh, but that's a good piece. But I can't help but wonder with all that feedback that he received and shared that maybe this ethical entanglement thing is a bit of what these hiring entities are thinking as well. Even if it's not ethics, even if it's just paperwork burden, right? I used to work for a really large data services company. I won't name them. You can go dig if you want to. Um, And when I walked in the door, one of the things I had to disclose was my financial ties and things to other entities and, you know, all that, right? And I had to mention the podcast, and I had to mention the fact that the podcast had sponsors. And um, they did thorough research. It went all the way to the CMO and general counsel, apparently. Like, there was a lot of hubbub about, do we let this guy keep doing his podcast, you know, when he signs up with us? And fortunately, I I won that right. I, I kept getting to do the show. Um, but that was a whole thing. It was, it was, it was people's time and money digging into this and dealing with it. So even if you don't think of it as an ethics burden on the company who's hiring you, it's a hassle and a bureaucratic burden if you have rules, right? Like I can hire this person who has no entanglements and know they can start on Monday, or I can hire this person who has entanglements and have to go through two weeks of crap. And then they can start on that Monday. That might be an influence on this. I mean, I can see that. My employment contract says that I can't work for anyone else, that this has to be my one and only role. So each time I've been offered an advisory position, I've gone and like asked permission to make sure that we're kind of meeting that that need. And it's never been a problem. And I, I believe I manage my time pretty effectively. But I, I can see it. I can absolutely see where they're coming from. And I wonder if it's maybe a, a big company thing where you do have a lot of those rules like the companies where if you want to take a speaking engagement you need approval right but maybe kind of this the next level down where you don't have quite so many restrictions uh, i wonder if they would have the same feedback right and and in my case with the podcast obviously there's just that whole he's going to be out there in public thing even if money's not changing hands do we want our employees being public because they represent us and da 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 and I literally had to let them listen to multiple episodes of the show. Like it was it was a thing. It was a thing signing on with them. But we got through it all. Um so that's that. Um I don't know that I've got any more last thoughts or comments myself. Um uh, thanks to all who participated on that LinkedIn thread. I wish I'd had a chance to cite some more of people's feedback, but I think we managed to tackle most of the issues folks addressed in that thread. Anything more from you, Carla? I think my one thing, and this is maybe not going to be all that popular, but is CISOs need to, in my opinion, think about what value they add. So, you know, companies often need advice on how they grow their business, which isn't necessarily the the background of a CISO. So I think knowing that you, you know, saying this is how you should sell to me is not the same as knowing how to sell. And I think having some understanding around that, which I don't see a lot of right now, um, I think will make you a more valuable board member and will get you the experience that you need to be able to, to give that advice and join bigger boards in the future. So I guess that's my only little closing point that'll probably get me a, a few angry comments. You know, I, I'm thinking about it though. I've been at two startups myself and maybe that's part of why I keep getting tapped for these boards is I do have that that leadership role in a startup experience as well as the practitioner CISO experience. 
Uh, and that may well be why why folks are looking at me. I never thought of that, but that that might be one of the value adds and why I'm an attractive uh, candidate for these roles. Because I certainly get asked to do these more than I, I'm at capacity. I've got one last person I'm talking to right now about possibly coming on and advising for her company. And I'm like, that's it. Five would be my absolute limit. Um, but I get asked a lot. Maybe it's that startup experience. I hadn't thought of that. I would think probably, yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of unique. There's a couple of CISOs that have that. And then when they say, hey, vendors, don't do this, I respect that a lot more than, you know, than some of the others, because that is how you want to be sold to. There's a reason vendors sell in a certain way, because it works. Well, Carla Ruffold, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>